Let's remain standing before the Word of God as it comes to us before the, from the 146th Psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I have praised the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. We believe this to be the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of the true and the living God, our only rule for faith and practice in this life. Please be seated. Lord, or God, as I open this passage, I confess that I have nothing that I can bring to these people that is worth any eternal good. And I ask you to speak with the the, the voice that calls universes out of nothing, the voice that raises the dead to life. I ask you to take this, your spirit-indwelt, powerful word, and give life. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to come with me to Leipzig, Germany, to the year 1750, where the great organist and composer Johann Sebastian Bach lies blind, dying, and dictating. His son-in-law, his amanuensis, is scribbling as fast as he can, just furiously scribbling as the composer struggles to finish his final work, The Art of the Fugue. Bach pours the very last breath of his genius into a work that explores every facet of harmony and counterpoint and fugal art, all the depth and all the power of which this great musical form is capable. Each of these 20 fugues is richer and more complex than the one before it. Each one stretches the limits of musical possibility just a little bit further. Each one is laying a different stone in the foundation of all Western music since. And the old master's voice creaks and sings one last phrase. His son-in-law pen, his pen scratches one last time. Bach does something that you can't do in English, but you can in German. In German, the, le- the musical letters go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. Probably just for him. Because here, with the very last word of his life, he sings B. A-C-H. And his son-in-law writes that into the manuscript and he looks up. Silence. Some say that Bach had done all that he had to do. Wiser minds believe that he had done all that there was to do. The art of the fugue doesn't just summarize Bach's career. It summarizes the total of music, the entire discipline. Okay, why are we talking about J.S. Bach? 
I know you all love him as much as I do, but why is he relevant here? Because Psalm 146 to 150 does the same thing to the Psalter, does the same thing to the praise of God that the art of the fugue does for music. Psalm 146 through 150 are the capstones of the Psalter. And I have called them for our purposes the art of the praise. These are called the Hallelujah Psalms because they use that phrase all over the place and because they're completely consumed with every different harmony, every different counterpoint, every different structure of the praise of God. Here at the end of the Psalter, the Holy Spirit is pouring out one last great cataract of glorious music, teaching us, summarizing for us all the different aspects, forms, and subjects for our praise of God. <laughs> and that's why, with apologies to J.S. Bach, I've called this section of the Psalter the art of the praise. Because the art of the praise does, for a great theological form, exactly what the art of the few does for a great musical form. They expose us to all of the possibilities found in the exercise of delighting in God. The structure of Psalm 146, as it introduces these last five psalms, is like this. Verses 1 and 2, a call to praise. Verses 3 and 4, the foolishness of trusting in men. And verses 5 to 10, aspects and benefits of God's sovereignty. Charles Spurgeon takes a leaf here from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress by opening his exposition of Psalm 146 with these words. The rest of our journey lies through the delectable mountains. All is praise to the close of the book. I think that's a beautiful image. As Spurgeon contemplates that last ascent of the mountain range of the Psalms, he does not put in front of himself the obstacles of the Himalayas, although their altitudes are about right for this exercise, but the delectable mountains from Pilgrim's Progress. In so doing, what, what Spurgeon is doing is he's calling us to rejoice in God. Our, our duty to praise God is a joyful duty. And our God calls us to rejoice in Him. Not to pay our obligations to Him out of cold necessity and dread. Praise is not a satisfaction of God's needy ego. No, it's not the flattery that appeases a bully. To praise God is to revel in the generosity with which He's made Himself known. To celebrate the beauty of His attributes. To find ourselves exhilarated that such a being should A, exist, and B, should desire to be present with us. Praise is the inevitable response to the discovery that the creator of the rolling spheres ineffably sublime has looked down on a few motes of dust, briefly animate dust, crawling on a little wet rock and pays attention to them. Does that bother anybody else? That such a being as would say, let there be light and we get this, would look at a bunch of worms and pay attention to us. Would care what we thought. Would listen when we sang his name. I'm sorry, that's crazy. That, that, that's ridiculous. That's another one of those things where Tertullian's dictum comes into play. I believe because it is absurd. Who would have the audacity to make this up? <clears throat> what we're dealing with here is uh, a truly unbelievable thing. We're dealing with the idea that we can go and be heard by God. When you stop to think about who God is, 
who that is that hears us, that's just absurd. You know what else is absurd? Having a page missing from your manuscript. (laughs) But I digress. That should shorten shorten the sermon. The first thing that happens in this psalm is that uh, the psalmist calls us to praise. Praise the Lord. Instantly, upon calling us to praise, the very next thing he does after that is he says, oh, wait a minute, I need to do that. And he talks to his soul. Oh, my soul, praise the Lord. That's not the first time he's done that. There are at least two other uh, places, one in Psalm 103, where the psalmist addresses his soul. The other in Psalm 42, the psalm says to his soul, soul, do something. Take comfort. Praise the Lord. He's talking to his soul. Do you talk to yourself? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's okay to talk to yourself. You should talk to yourself. However, Lloyd-Jones says don't let yourself talk to you. Don't do that. You talk to yourself. That's what's going on in these areas of the Psalter where the Psalter addresses his soul and says, do this. Take this comfort. Have this attitude. Offer this praise. Here's what's not happening when the psalmist does that. He's not suppressing his emotions. He's not. We're Presbyterians. We are the Vulcans of the Christian Federation. Okay, we, 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 go, we do our live long and prosper, and we're accused of not being emotional at all. But as any Star Trek fans know, the emotions of Vulcans are very, very powerful. And the emotions involved in praise are intense in the extreme. So when our psalmist is telling his soul to feel a certain way, he's not stifling his emotions, he's choosing his emotions. Has it ever occurred to you that you have both the capability and the responsibility of choosing your emotions? Think about that. He's not at the mercy of whatever stray feeling happens to cross his mind at a given moment. His emotions are regulated, selected, controlled. And regulated, selected, controlled emotion is not fakery, it's not acting, it's maturity. After all, why does God love you? Why does he exercise that emotion toward you? Hint, God does not, I say again, God does not love you because he is overwhelmed by how cute you are and can't help himself. That's not why God loves you. You know why God loves you? God loves you because he chooses to do so. He works in you the capability of loving Him, which you do not have without His Holy Spirit changing you. But having done that, He does call you to choose Him. You will find no more serious Calvinist, no more serious predestination than me. And yet what happens in regeneration is that a man is given the ability which is not his by nature. He is given the ability to desire God. And then he is commanded to do so. That's what's going on here. There's another instructive point in these first couple of verses. The kind of action that's called for in the opening. Constant action. When are you going to praise the Lord? Verse 1 and 2 put very strict limits on exactly when you can praise the Lord. And you can only praise the Lord within these limits and never for one second outside them. And here are the strict limits within which you are allowed to praise the Lord. These and no other, only when you exist. That's the only time you're allowed to praise the Lord. Anybody feel restricted by that limit? When you exist. So, what's off limits? When can you not praise the Lord? When is it not your duty to praise the Lord? If by some miracle you should cease to exist, 
then and only then would the duty and delight of praising God disappear when you do. All of life is to be suffused with this attitude, with these words, with this tone of singing. Even our lamentation rests on a foundation of praise to which we return again and again when we arm ourselves with the God who is. That's what praise really is. Arming yourself with the God who is. That's a sentence you need to remember. Praise is arming yourself with the God who is. It's a weapon. Both offensive and defensive. Now, lest you be diverted, lest all the shiny objects in the world get your attention, our psalmist departs from the specific content of praise and says, here's where you don't need to go. He talks about the foolishness of trusting men. There's the missing page. <laughs> talks about the foolishness of trusting men. Put no confidence in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. That very day, he perishes. Now, we don't know who wrote the psalm. One of the better candidates is David. Anybody remember what David did for a living? He was a prince. He was a king. The psalm says, put no confidence in princes. I struggle in vain to find anybody more qualified to make that assessment than David the king. I find somebody close. Solomon could make that assessment. Now, if David didn't write the psalm, and it's better than even money that he didn't, it's somebody later. Now, if it was later, the later you get into Israel's history, the less need you have to be reminded how unreliable men are. Even the great kings, even your Davids and Solomons, even your Hezekiahs and Josiahs, all of them err. All of them disappoint. And failing that, all of them die. And that's the good ones. You know how Israel did. Israel went 0-19 for bad kings. That's a pretty significant record there. Judah didn't do a whole lot better. Look up a guy by the name of Manasseh for your viewing pleasure. Learn this. Learn this well. Write this on your mirror, all capital letters, Boldface, italics, and bright red ink. There are no political solutions ever. Ain't no such animal as a political solution. Ever. Look why our psalmist tells us not to rush to men for our salvation. He says, they are the son of man. They are sons of Adam. That's the word that is used for a man in Son of Man in verse 3. They're not mere biological descendants of Adam, although that would be quite bad enough, thank you very much. They share the nature. They share the outlook. They share the disabilities of the Adam that got us all here in the first place. They're the same kind of being with all the same kinds of fallibilities and weaknesses and depravities. Therefore, in man, says our psalm, there is no salvation. I think the KJV is even more pessimistic. It says, there is no help. Think about that. Far from actual deliverance, like the word salvation, the political arena doesn't even offer temporary relief. And then the psalmist comforts us with this word. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Let's just say, for the sake of fantastical argument, that we got a good one for a little while. Doesn't matter. He's going to die. All that he did will be wiped out. But the idea of having a good political leader is a bit too fantastical to appear in a book as realistic as Scripture. No, our psalmist here is not calling us to despair because no good political leader will live long enough to help us. That's not the burden of that verse. No, he's calling us to hope 
because the mortality of evil political leaders limits the amount of harm they can do. Hitler is dead. Stalin is dead. Mao is dead. Marx is dead. I could go on, but you see a trend emerging here. The fact that they're going to die limits the amount of harm they can do. And that's about the most hopeful political statement the Bible ever makes. At least he's going to die. Do not trust in princes. Why? Because they're trying to deal with the wrong problem. Human problems are spiritual problems. Problems of a depraved and darkened heart. No mere man, certainly not one with a depraved and darkened heart, can do anything about that. Our psalmist calls us to trust not in these crazy people who want power, but to trust in the God who does have power and isn't bothered by personal depravity and blindness and finitude. Verse 5 through 10 goes into who this God is, why he's trustworthy, and why our trust and therefore our delight is to be placed in him and not the silly men in the big tall buildings. Verse 5 opens with the word blessed. And the rest of the psalm gives a line-by-line description of the God who does the blessing and the reasons these things are blessed. Blessed is he, one, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. We start by talking about the God of Jacob, not just any God. This is a God with whom we are in covenant. This is a God who keeps promises, a God who has made them. A God who lives in relationship, not Aristotle's unmoved mover, not an idea in the abstract up in the sky somewhere. This is a God who knows us. This is a God about whom we can use a spectacularly unexpected grammatical phrase. The God of Jacob, the Lord, His God. You look at the eternal, unchanging, self-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing God. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The being whose idea existence is. And you speak of him as mine. Don't gloss over that. Don't forget to be astonished by that. I look at that thing. I look at this three-personed, incomprehensible enigma and say to all of its grandeur, mine. You are blessed if God belongs to you. It speaks in terms of both help and hope. He upholds us with the strongest of arms and he he forges his promises into future facts. You hear the word hope used every day to mean wish. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope everything goes well. It's a wish. It's a feeble, ephemeral gust of wind. That's not what hope means in Scripture. Hope means in Scripture, and I want you to remember this and take it with you. Hope means in Scripture, future fact. Future fact. Write that down, carve that into your forehead. Hope is future fact. And the reason we have that kind of hope is that our hope is based on infallible promises. It's hard to break your promise when you already built the future with your own hands. I make promises that I break. Why? Not because I intend to break them, but because I don't know what's happening in the future. I don't know what will befall me. I can be prevented from doing what I want to do. That does not happen to God. His promises do not only come from the mouth that actually creates truth out of nothing. His promises are based on what he, from his point of view, has already finished creating by his hand. 
He's read the answers at the end of the textbook. No, he wrote them. That's why he can promise so infallibly. Who is this God? Verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. There are no maverick molecules. There is no place that is out from under God's, out from under our God's jurisdiction. The abyss of deep heaven is one of his thoughts. The terrifying, uncontrollable sea that all the pagan gods fear is a tiny droplet. The whole earth is a grain of sand. This is the ultimate friend in high places. What else do we hear about this, this God? Well, the next thing we hear about him is that he keeps faith forever. The word is emet, faithfulness, trustworthiness, reliability. Indeed, the words in, these, in this sentence for faithfulness and forever, the words for faithfulness and the word for eternity are very near synonyms. Isn't that interesting? A word that talks about being true to someone and a word that talks about eternity are almost identical in definition. These words present the theological idea of God's immutability and they present it as a practical reality with space-time implications for your lives in this world and the next. Our immutable God is not static. That's not who he is. He's not static He's trustworthy. He does not change his mind about us depending on how he acts or how we act. Can you imagine having to deal with a God who saw how we had acted, saw our attitudes, saw our behavior, and adapted? Oh, he did that. Now what am I, now what am I going to do? Send that one back to the God store. I do not want that one. I do not want to deal with a God who's improvising, adapting, and overcoming according to the discoveries he makes about me. That's not what Scripture says. That's not who we are presented with at all. He doesn't change his mind about us. He tells us who he is. He tells us what he's going to do. And his word is as eternal as it is infallible. He's not moody. When all around my heart gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Hope in the sense of future fact. Well, who else is he? Verse 7 tells us he is the God who ex executes justice for the oppressed. And again, we return to those twin themes of hope and warning. The words for justice and the word for oppression are opposites, but they have something in common. Both justice and oppression refer to the use of force. They're coercive in nature, both of them. The oppressed are those who are the victims of the illegitimate use of force. And God's justice reverses their position. Intrinsic to the immutable character of God is this judicial reply against sin. Now here's what's important about that. When God's justice is unleashed upon the oppressed, it does not just bring an end to their suffering. That's nice. We like that. We don't have a problem with bringing an end to our suffering. But it does something more. It vindicates. Have you ever known the feeling of having been put down, having been oppressed, having been lied to or worse yet lied about, having been betrayed, having been held up before a crowd of people as the bad guy, having been laughed at and ridiculed, and some judicial presence enters, and you are shown to be the one that was in the right. You were shown to be the righteous and upright one. And your detractors are shown to be wicked and buffoons and fools. That's vindication. And that's a very, very important aspect of what God does when he rescues the oppressed. God replies to sin. 
And those who have no power in this world, those who are downtrodden by the wickedly powerful, they have the guarantee of God, who is truth itself, that they will be vindicated. Not Not just relieved, vindicated. And their losses will be restored. And those who oppress those have exactly the opposite side of the same guarantee. Be sure your sins will find you out. You are going down if you're an oppressor. Who else is this God? The next thing we hear is that he is the God who gives food to the hungry. And I'm not going to over-spiritualize it. The fact is that this is primarily about physical hunger. God provides. Every one of you, as far as I know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess every one of you ate pretty regularly this week. And you did so because God provided But wait a minute, I went out and worked for a living. Yeah. Using skills God gave you in a situation God created and and regulated. Meeting the right people that you needed to meet. Doing the right tasks that you needed to do. All because of a set of faculties given to you by God. Not earned by you. Woven into your mind and your hands. By skills not your own. And even the circumstances which made it possible for you to use those skills. Even the people with whom you interacted to use those skills were all brought to you by a God who wrote time. He gives food to the hungry. But there's more. This is also about any need of any kind in any aspects of life. The God we praise gives us food, but he also makes us complete. This shows up in the other Psalms as well. Psalm 23 1. Quote that for me. Psalm 23 verse 1. You know it? The Lord's my what's the consequence of the Lord being my shepherd? I shall not want. The word want in 17th century English means lack. I have everything I need. How about uh, Psalm 103, verse 5, describing the Lord as, Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. There are more. This is a God-provided fullness of life. Life in the covenant is never empty. It is always complete. And uh, God calls us to be greedy. God calls us to a spiritual avarice. He wants us to be insatiable in our desire for Him and for blessings seen not as luxuries for us, but as gifts from the one who loves us. The next thing we find out is that the Lord sets the prisoner free. Again, release from many kinds of bondage shows up all over the Psalter. You're always in prison and you're always getting out. Psalm 68, 6. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Psalm 69, 33. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. A beautiful, beautiful verse early in Exodus is when God is looking at the bondage of the people in Egypt. He's looking at the miseries they're suffering. He's looking at the injustice and the oppression of his people. And we hear... And God heard, and God saw, and God knew. Where would you be if you were living out your life under the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and God didn't know? Where would you be when you were crying out in the agonies of physical illness, of loneliness, of frustration, of bewilderment. And your cries were unheard. How you doing? How you doing today? Can't complain, nobody's listening anyway. You are heard. Omnipotence is aware of every subatomic detail of the things that oppress and stress, and overwhelm you. 
Does that matter? Even if you can't see immediate action, does it matter to you? Does it comfort you? Does it enrich you? Does it strengthen you to know that in the worst minute of the worst day you will ever face, omnipotence knows? You have been heard. You have been seen. You are known. All by the God who acts. Well, what kind of acting? Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Now, gaining physical sight actually does happen a handful of times in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, it's going to happen to me Tuesday. I'm getting these cataracts fixed. So I won't need a German shepherd to get to church anymore. Gaining physical sight does happen a handful of times in Scripture. But verse 8 mostly concerns God's revelation of Himself and of His ways to those who finitude and fallenness would not allow them to discover Him for themselves. By nature, not only can't we know God, we don't want to. We don't want to understand His ways. We are willfully blind to the light that's in Him. Here, the regenerated believer thanks God for overcoming him in him the self-inflicted blindness that's common to all men. If you are unregenerate, you're blind. You know why you're blind? Because you've got your hands over your eyes. That kind of blind. I don't know God because I'm wiser or smarter or more perceptive than my neighbor. I know him because he has given me eyes to see him. I know him because he has made himself known. Because he has overwhelmed my blindness with his light. I praise him because he did not leave me as I was. He did not leave me as I wanted to be. He seized me. He healed me. He made me see. And that's what verse 8 praises. What else does this God do? Well, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. All over the Psalter, Zion sings of the encouragements of a covenant God. 103.13 As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 147.2 The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Are any of you are in are any of you in any of the classes listed here? Brokenhearted, downtrodden, anybody who's known fear of punishment, loneliness, alienation, fragility, depression. Anybody who has called, any one of these people has cause to praise a gatherer of outcasts, a healer of the brokenhearted, a binder up of heart wounds. That's who we're dealing with here. The Lord loves the righteous. Oh, now we're in trouble. Who wants to wear that word as an identifying badge? Righteous. I might be comfortable halfway being called good, but righteous? Are you serious? Do I really have to be righteous? A tzaddik is not just a good person. It's one who's been vindicated. Remember that word? Vindicated. One who's been vindicated as righteous by God. It's one who has been justified. It's one for whom, by whatever means, God has enabled himself to say, this one is mine. This one owes me no debt. Owes my law no debt. This one has been found innocent of any wrongdoing. This one has been found fully in compliance with every detail and every intention of the spirit of my word. Look at this one. And see what my grace can accomplish. God indeed does love the righteous. But remember this. The love 
came before the righteousness. And the righteousness is not, repeat, not, repeat, not a product of your unassisted action. The righteousness is a product of of the declarative justifying decree of the living God looking to the cross and writing in blood the expungement of all your sins, the propitiation of God's wrath, and the declaration of your perfected holiness before angels, demons, and men. That is vindication. That is a tzaddik. And that's who the Lord loves. Do you qualify? Is his name written on your heart in divine blood? Are you good enough? Uh Uh-uh. Is goodness enough imputed to you all day long? What else do we hear about this story? Well, verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. What's a sojourner? A sojourner is a non-citizen. It's an alien. It's somebody without any inherited land rights. He's a temporary inhabitant of the land. He's a newcomer. He has very limited rights under law. And in fact, he would be very, very easy to exploit. Another reason our psalm gives for praising God is God looks looks out for this kind of person. They have little to no social standing. They do not enjoy the full protections of the law. They don't enjoy the protections of the citizenship of the commonwealth. God sees God knows, God watches, God supports. Again, hope and warning. We find hope in the God who knows all our circumstances. And we are warned by a God who knows how we treat our vulnerable neighbors. So both sides of the equation. If you have a marginal position in society, you're a sojourner. God specializes in protecting your like. If you have all the goods of your community and you look down on those who are not at the cool kids table, beware. God deals with oppressors of sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Throughout Israel's history, God requires that widows and orphans be cared for, always. And that phenomenon is unique in the ancient world. In any other part of this world until well into modern times, if you were a widow, if you were an orphan, tough, you died. They just left you to die. That was normal. People thought the Israelites were crazy for caring about widows and orphans. That kind of thing doesn't happen on Yahweh's watch. Deuteronomy 10.18, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68, 5. God is the father of the fatherless, and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God calls us to be his hands and feet in caring for the widow and the orphan. I I hear from the pro-abortion crowd that Christians are pro-birth, not pro-life. All we care about is making sure the kids get born and after they're born they're on their own. I am delightfully proud of the fact that Christians lead the world in adoption ministries. That we are constantly hunting down those who would be killed or abandoned and making them our own children. We do that more than anybody else does. And we need to point that out and we need to involve ourselves in that. How many hospitals in this world have a Christian denomination's name on them? How many hospitals in this world have the name of a biblical figure or biblical event or biblical place on them? Before the advent of biblical faith, there was no such animal as medical care. It never occurred to anybody to take care of somebody who was hurt or sick. That was our idea. Now, other people got better at it than us, but it was our idea. 
And then we get this, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now that's a warning. But it's also something to rejoice in. One of the things that we praise God for, one of the things that we delight in and admire about God is the vindication of His righteousness by means of the destruction of His enemies. Evil people are God's enemies and God deals with them and that's not a bad thing. Now even the most sinful of us know that on some level. I know that in the most depraved corners of my heart. And I'll tell you how I know that in the most depraved corners of my heart. I like action movies. It's my guilty secret. I like Arnold Schwarzenegger, blow everybody up, action movies. And what is it that I like about an action movie? I like the horrible things that happen to the bad guy at the end of the movie. There is a formula that they all follow. And the first and great commandment of that formula is the bad guy dies a bad death. So when the bad guy dies a bad death, what happens in the theater? That's when everybody applauds. That's when there's, there's cheering and rejoicing because the bad guy died a bad death. And you're sitting there saying, why should we be happy when a pipe goes through a guy's chest? Why are we happy about that? Because what's happening in that sick, twisted, ugly, vengeance-driven movie is that the movie's definition of righteousness is vindicated. And the movie's definition of evil is punished and justice is served. Now, that is a distorted, fallen, fallen twisted version of something that in goodness and truth is pure. Love of righteousness. Love of God's vengeance against that which violates God. Seeing God's name honored and vindicated in the destruction of his enemies. That's a new thing for us. The idea that there's an aspect of, this, of that that is worthy of the praise of God. Sometimes God acts very directly. It's a little easier for us to rejoice in that. Uh, Psalm 147 verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. We can kind of make our peace with that. We can say, okay, that's the sovereignty of God doing what God does directly. Sometimes, and this is going to make you itch, God uses means for this. Psalm 149.5. This is one of the Hallelujah Psalms. This is one of the Art of the Praise Psalms. This is offered up as praise. Let the godly exult in glory. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Now, in case the National Security Agency is listening to this sermon, I don't want them to get the idea that I am telling you that all of you need to go out and buy AK-47s and build a compound and prepare to overthrow the government and murder everybody who isn't a Christian. That's not our battle plan here. That's not what these verses are encouraging us to do. What the verses are encouraging us to recognize is that God vindicates his righteousness against those who oppose it. He uses a wide variety of direct and indirect means. It is possible, though not likely, that one or more of us may be called to engage in that kind of defense. Probably not. What we do need to see is that God reigns. 
What we do need to see is that sin will not go unanswered forever. It will be dealt with. It will be dealt with forcefully. And it will be dealt with righteously. And God's righteous attributes will have the last word. Not man's pretensions. Last word. We have a final guarantee of security. The Lord, in verse 10, will reign how long? Forever. Who's God? Your God, O Zion, to all generations. And in that, we are encouraged to praise the Lord. We're dealing with a sovereignty that knows no limit and knows no end. We're dealing with a sovereignty that provides for every need, but vindicates itself against every challenge. And in that sovereignty, we are called to delight. In that sovereignty, we are called to rejoice. Because this sovereignty is not some great and terrible sword that hangs threateningly over our head and calls down curses from Sinai. This is the sovereignty that invented the cross. About which more tonight. This is the sovereignty that reached down and reconciled. This is the sovereignty that called its own by name from eternity past and preserves its own by name toward eternity future. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Lord, we ask you to work in us this heart of praise. We ask you continually to adjust our hearts, to change us, to breathe into us a desire to rejoice in who you are and what you've done. We confess, Lord, that we're reluctant to do this. That we have our own concerns and our own world that we try to make without reference to you. Put an end to that. Again, make us insatiable in our appetite and desire for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close today by singing Psalm 146. I learned this song from your old Red Trinity hymnal in 1990. And I loved that version. And when I saw that the version in your current hymnal was different, I was at first disappointed and then I read it. It's much better. Which surprised me. I'm a Presbyterian. Things don't ever get better. (laughs) But here we have a, a great setting of Psalm 146 to a very, very old tune. Thank you.